0: Welcome to Knot Project Space. Knot Project Space is powered by the Digital Arts Resource Centre, located in Ottawa on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Nation. The space is uniquely configured to present installations, screenings, and performances by contemporary artists working within the field of media art.
1: If you want to be the first to know about everything new in Canada's media arts scene, then we've got you covered. Sign up for Dark's Media Arts newsletter and get the scoop on artistic grants, employment opportunities, exclusive resources, and more. Visit digitalartsresourcecenter.ca to sign up today.
0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Not Project Spaces Podcast Series. My name is Anies Deschal and today I'll be talking with artist Whitefeather Hunter about her work in our online exhibition, In Space Grey. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that we're connecting with you today from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Nation. We honour the Algonquin people, who have occupied this territory since time immemorial, and whose culture has nurtured and continues to nurture this land and its people. We are grateful to be guests on this land where we have the opportunity to work, live, and create. In an effort to make this acknowledgement more active, we ask that you learn about the land that you're joining us from today and that you read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action. Please follow the link in the episode description. In Space Gray is a durational, mostly asynchronous online exhibition meditating on themes of connection, environmental extraction, and accelerated capitalism. Whitefeather Hunter is a multiple award-winning Canadian artist and scholar. She is a PhD candidate in Biological Art at Symbiotica, the University of Western Australia. Her studies are supported by a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council Doctoral Fellowship, an Australian Government International RTP Scholarship, and a UWA International Postgraduate Scholarship. Before commencing her PhD, Hunter was a founding member and principal investigator of the Speculative Life Biolab at Milieu Institute for Arts, Culture and Technology, Concordia University. Hunter's practice intersects techno-feminist witchcraft and biotechnologies with performance, new media, and textiles. Whitefeather Hunter works with the many intersections and problematics of bioremediation. During her residency in the Faculty of Science at St. Mary's University, It was Whitefeather's intention to make an offering of gold-producing microbes to a poison site where settler industry had rendered the landscape useless and dangerous.
1: I was invited to come to Halifax to be hosted at St. Mary's University. I know the director, Mireille Bourgeois, and so she invited me to come and do their very first um, art science residency. So this was, you know, in a way sort of an inaugural project, um, and it was kind of like a test project. So I happily agreed and went to Halifax for six weeks, I believe. I hopped on a plane and went to Halifax and uh, met with my host and collaborator um, and graduate student, and I was given some office space and I was given laboratory access um, in a microbiology lab, I went to um, collaborate, I guess, or be hosted by um, a, a, an environmental scientist at St. Mary's University. Uh, this is Dr. Linda Campbell. She's an environmental scientist working, you know, around phytoremediation, remediation, which is kind of remediating the environment with plants. Um, <clears throat> so I was looking at, you know, the intersection of, my area of expertise um, in microbiology with her area of expertise in um, phytoremediation. And we were interested in exploring possibilities for how a very contaminated um, gold mine tailing site might possibly be bioremediated.
0: Prospective Futures, the Aurelia project, starts with bioremediation.
1: I guess I should back up a bit and um, start with the, the foundations of the project. Bioremediation is looking at a way of using living um, organisms, and it, it can be plants. When it's plants, it's you know more specifically phytoremediation, or it can be microbes, um, which is what I was attempting to do in my case. So there are, are lots of different approaches that people can take for looking at ways that you know, other species might be able to be used to clean up a polluted site. And you know the specific polluted sites that we were investigating were these legacy gold mine tailing sites. For people who might not know what that means, um, basically, when a company goes in and mines an area for gold, lots of, you know, toxic chemicals are used to extract the gold from the ore. What happens is that, you know, they're left with a bunch of waste material, which is usually in the form of very, very toxic sand uh, at the end. So that sand is taken and dumped somewhere, and that becomes the toxic tailing site. So there were two sites that we visited around Halifax. One was at Montague, Uh, The other one was at a place just simply called Muddy Pond. And I was sort of really interested in the Montague site because it was so uh, visually captivating, I guess, in its starkness, you know, in its sterile looking uh, landscape aesthetic. It was this vast landscape of gold, literally gold um, sand. And, you know, that sand was kind of really dazzling. And this is due to the fact that there's still up to 40% of the of the gold from the original ore is left in these tailings. And this was a legacy site, meaning that this process had happened back in the 1800s. So, you know, when when you're walking around in these sites, this gold is kind of coloring the sand and it makes for this unbelievable, beautiful, incredibly toxic uh, wasteland. It's important that I mention that there's still 40%, up to 40% of the gold still remaining in these tailings because the Nova Scotia government was interested in bioremediating these tailings specifically uh, so that they could go back in and remine them. You know, once the toxic chemicals were removed, they could then go back into these sites um, and hopefully extract some of the gold. And this was a bit of an ethical conundrum for me. My motivations towards bioremediation were, you know, as an artist, they were poetic. Um, I, I was interested in... Uh, Poetic engagement with the landscape, with the culture of the original First Peoples of that environment, um, as well as with looking at human relationships with microorganisms um, and how I might, you know, use that to possibly bioremediate this landscape. I was not interested in supporting... um, industry going forward and and putting more chemicals back into the landscape once it had been cleaned up my collaborator uh dr campbell was interested in this potential for bioremediating the site um, simply because she would rather see industry you know and the government and these companies go in and remine a site that was already toxic rather than going to a new pristine site, um, to try to mine for gold there. You know, it's, it was a very good point that she was making in her support for, you know, bioremediating for this purpose. My perspective is that they will probably just continue to mine wherever they can, uh, whether it's, you know, a former site or a new site. So, um, you know, there was sort of a, a difference of ethics around that, I guess, uh, which which was really interesting. It was a pretty valuable learning experience for me because I think that, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing that happens um, when people think about things like bioremediation, um, but the point. I like to make now, having had this experience and having sort of learned these things through this experience, is that it's important to look at why this site is going to be bioremediated and for whom. Is it for the community, you know, to make the site less toxic for the community that lives around it? Um, Or is it for industry? Or... Maybe sometimes it works out to be for both. You know, these things are so complicated. And so this this project became a really, really politically complex project. And at times very frustrating for me. Uh, Sometimes distressing as I, you know, grappled with the complexity of the issues. Um,
0: Very, very valuable learning experience. The complexities of the project led Whitefeather into the creation of a video work. My
1: original intentions for this project, I guess the end result, was um, a performance. I was interested in how I might put some gold back into that environment while also reducing the toxicity. So I worked in the microbiology lab at St. Mary's University for six weeks, um, testing soil samples from the two sites Culturing a specific uh, species of bacteria called *Cupriavidus metallidurans*, and this is an extremophile species. Okay, so it needs very um, particular conditions in order to thrive. One of those being um, very high temperatures. Um, it's usually found around, you know, volcano openings, effluent uh, sites where you know hot effluent is kind of seeping into the environment. Um, So I had to learn the characteristics of this species, um, culture it in the lab at specific temperatures. It has this wonderful metabolic characteristic where it can produce enzymes that will reduce uh, mercury to inert particles, so they're no longer toxic. It can also metabolize other harsh chemicals that are used in gold mining processes like gold chloride. And actually, from those chemicals, produce um, microparticles of 24 karat gold. So I worked closely with this bacterium, and I was very cognizant of the fact that my uh, performative gesture might fail in that regard, because A, um, the site was not a site that had high temperatures— So the probability of this bacteria being able to, you know, multiply itself and amplify its activity were slim to none. I'm also cognizant of the fact that, you know, putting a small amount of microbes into an environment where they might uh, be able to be active and metabolize the chemicals, etc., was something that was going to take a profoundly long period of time. You know, these microbes are responsible for producing some of the gold that we find naturally in the environment, but it would have taken millennia for them to do that in any significant quantity. I was really aware of all of these facts. So, you know, when I say that my activity, my gesture was meant to be poetic This is what I mean. It was meant to symbolize decolonizing this space by recolonizing it with the microbes um, that may be able to repair the environment in some small way. Now, ultimately, one of the other researchers who was on the research, on Dr. Campbell's research team, won a million dollar bid um, from the Nova Scotia government to use uh, another um, chemical, and possibly plants, um, to bioremediate the site. And so as soon as that bid came through, um, I was informed that the university could no longer support the end goals of my project. So essentially, you know, there was a concern that me sort of inoculating the site with these microbes in some small poetic way could potentially interfere with this other, you know,
0: million-dollar project. Whitefeather instead introduced deactivated prayer bundles into the site.
1: In the end, uh, I was not able to put the microbes in the soil and instead... I had replica prayer bundles, um, you know, full of the contaminated soil, uh, which did not contain the microbes as they were originally meant to. And instead, I performed the gesture of inoculating the soil. Like it was a mock gesture, basically, um, in order to be able to still produce the video uh, and still enact, you know, this poetic gesture in a way that could be communicated to an audience and still uh, get my point across for what the project was meant to do. So that was a compromise that, you know, I had to make in the end. And I guess, you know, ultimately, the project had to take a back seat to this other research that was being conducted for the sake of industry. So... Very politically charged. It was still an incredibly valuable experience, and you know I'm still extremely grateful to IOTA Institute for bringing me there, and you know to Dr. Campbell for hosting me at the university and allowing me to do my experiments. Um, it it takes a lot to get an artist laboratory access you know and she is still holding my samples of the microbes in her -80 freezer at St. Mary's University so you know she she's been supportive in the ways that she can be supportive without compromising the larger goals I guess of her other researchers on her permanent more permanent research team the other interesting learning experience for me was working with an indigenous curator on the project who Uh, IOTA Institute had brought on to, you know, help facilitate this negotiation of traditional territory um, and the ways that it's been impacted by colonial industry and looking at how to move forward, you know, in that way. Roger Lewis is the name of the Indigenous curator who I worked with. He is um, at the Nova Scotia Museum. And he did come out to the sites and we sort of walked around. um, But I met with Roger in his office, you know, one on one a couple of times. And he relayed some really valuable um, information to me through some storytelling and through sharing, um, you know, some Mi'kmaq indigenous history because it is on traditional Mi'kmaq territory. And he helped me to gain a much deeper understanding of, you know, Mi'kmaq relationship to that landscape, the way that it, um, you know, impacts cultural identity, um, cultural memory. And this goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You know, and he impressed upon me that whenever— Anyone does something to the landscape and to the land, no matter how small that action might be, um, they do something to the bodies of the indigenous peoples of that territory. And, you know, with the understanding that, of course, there is no separation between mind, body, spirit. So, you know, thinking about it um, in that way and from his perspective, as a Mi'kmaq person, the best possible course of action in a situation like this is to leave the space alone and allow it to remediate itself because ultimately another human intervention is another human intervention. Interventionism is kind of what colonialism is built on. So that was also a really interesting um, perspective that I gained from working with Roger, and, you know, I'm so grateful for him taking the time to sort of explain to me in his own way through storytelling and through pointing me to archival material uh, at the Nova Scotia Archives, an audio clip of which is in the, uh, the video. That audio clip was something that Roger directly referred me to Um, as a way of understanding Indigenous relationship to the land and to these gold mining processes. So, you know, Roger is in that video as well, sort of indirectly through that audio clip from the archives, this story that's being told of Glooscap and the way that Glooscap is telling the Mi'kmaq people that white people are coming and they're here to take your land and take the gold. And I should also mention that Another part of the audio is an interview that I did with Robin Metcalf. And Robin is the director of the gallery there at St. Mary's University. Um, and he has an incredibly deep uh, relationship as well with the gold mining industry through his own familial history, um, you know, and that is uh, colonial and early colonial history. Um, through his ancestry and through his, you know, father's profession. So he is telling his personal story about his relationship, you know, to gold mining, to Nova Scotia, um, and the political history around all of that um, from the perspective of uh, a colonial person. When I say it was a complex project, I mean it was incredibly complex for for all of these reasons, but the video um, ultimately is the gem, not the gold itself.
0: (laughs) Thanks to Whitefeather Hunter for talking with me about the complexities of Perspective Futures, the Aurelia Project. This work was created during the course of her residency at the IOTA Institute at St. Mary's University and was funded by the Conseil des Arts et Lettres du Québec and the Canada Council for the Arts. For more about Whitefeather's work in In Space Grey, visit digitalartsresourcecentre.ca. Every year,
1: the Digital Arts Resource Centre hosts Resolution, a public screening showcasing new work created by our members in the previous year. Any genre of work may be submitted, including experimental, drama, documentary, and animation. Visit digitalartsresourcecenter.ca to submit your work for Resolution 2022.
0: You've been listening to Not Project Space, powered by the Digital Arts Resource Center. This podcast was produced by Anise Dushalm with the help of associate producer Gary Franks. Original music by Adam Sagley. This episode was recorded by Anise Decham and Mel Gussnay with special guest White Feather Hunter. It was edited and mixed by Adam Sakley. And of course, it wouldn't have happened without the rest of the team at Dark. Anetta Hagel, Jenna Spencer, Kalaya Bourne, Denise Marchesan-Cabral, Feza Lugoma, Christopher Payne, and Daniel Conisvita. Special thanks to the City of Ottawa, the Canada Council for the Arts, and the Ontario Arts Council. Join us once a week this fall on digital inspacegray slash in gray to interact with the works of Ashley Boa and Leslie Marshall, White Feather Hunter, May's Longboat, Tina Pearson, Emilio Portal, Manuel Pina Baldequin, and Tosca Taran over the course of online exhibition, In Space Gray. Thank you for listening.